Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Sandy, I feel like we just talked. Twice in one weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We did just talk. Uh, we had a great event last night, didn't we? Oh, my God. We, we really did. And as much as I'm down on Zoom events these days, uh, it was it was great. It was like the kind of event that a Zoom event seems perfect for, actually. Yeah, it was really great. For those of you who missed out, we did an anti-war event yesterday where we invited some folks who've been active in the anti-war movement at different periods in time, some right now, some uh, previously. And we just had a discussion about some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast about reinvigorating an anti-war movement in Canada, what that would need to look like, what sort of principles uh, folks would need to have. And we did it on Zoom. We recorded it. We live streamed it on Facebook. And we will have it available for you in these show notes. Yeah, they're they're, they're there right now if you look down. (laughs) Perfect. And also what we did was we created some useful materials for you because we sometimes get some questions in our DMs on email, just like we want to be able to do something. We just don't know where to start. So if you are thinking about starting an anti-war coalition in your local town, we've got some materials that will also be linked in these show notes that are just Google Docs that you can copy and uh, put in a new document and use and edit and um, shift in any way that you like that will hopefully be helpful for you to start an anti-war coalition if that's something that you're interested in doing. And the good thing about it is it's like you might look at it and be like, man, I'll need like 30 people in order to to start something like this and and I can't get 30 people out. You really literally only need two people <laughs> to start one mm-hmm, of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh and it is uh really easy to follow um these these documents and like I said you don't have to use everything that's in them. They're just kind of helpful tools, helpful guides. And uh yeah, if you use them, let us know. If you look at them and are like, "Uh you're missing this glaring thing that should be a part of these documents." email us and we'll Mm -hmm. add it. Um, But yeah, let us know if they're helpful. Yes. And we should also mention the other folks who participated because they were awesome. And there's ways that you can also link into the work that they're doing too. So we were joined by Rachel Small, who is Canada's World Beyond War representative. And her group has been organizing different actions. Not sure if people saw, but there was a a group of activists, including some folks in the Yemeni community in Toronto who dropped a banner at uh, Christian Freeland's office for allowing the sales of arms to Saudi Arabia, which were being used in Yemen. So World Beyond War, if you're interested in them, look them up. And Rachel, uh, thank you very much for being part of that. And Krishna Siravanamutu, who is a Tamil activist. He's active with a group called Spring Magazine, which I know um, they're always available for people to get involved. So if you're interested in in um, left-wing progressive activism of all sorts, you should check out Spring Magazine. And, and Krishna, um, he's someone who we both know. And Sandy, you at the end of the of the call, you were talking about how through struggle we create relationships with one another and 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 bonds and friendships, and it allows for the work to be much deeper than um, than just perhaps one off events. And um, of course, I, I imagine you were a little bit inspired um, by being uh, with Krishna and me, and like there's a whole bunch of other folks who are helping to put this on too, who were around organizing together. And it really makes me think of today's topic, actually, um, the, the, the real ways that we have to build and the things that we have to avoid. And, yeah. and it kind of brought this flood of memories back. I mean, you know, you and I talk all the time. So my flood of memories with you are, are always there. But the memories that I've had with Krishna over the years, I mean, some are some are pretty funny. <laughs> some are pretty great. <laughs> and it was a good reminder. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There are, you know, I, at at the end of, I don't know, my organizing life, which will hopefully not be 
for very, very long. But, you know, I just want to be able to, at some point in the future, look back and be like, oh, man, that was funny, wasn't it? Or, oh, man, those times, which I feel like we can kind of do in some ways with some of the movements that you and I have been involved in. But I I worry about that uh, with uh, some of the movements of the day because of just some trends in how we are treating each other and how we're encouraging one another to treat each other. Uh, and I think that that is where we're headed for this this topic today. So, you know, we could have talked about the Ontario election. We could have talked about COVID again. But we just think this is one of those episodes, this is one of those times where we just need to have a little bit of a conversation about what's just happening on the left, some culture stuff. But mm-hmm. before we get there... Do we have some people to thank? We have some people to thank and some other news to mention. And so um, this week, thank you so, so much to people that shared the episode, that commented, that gave us feedback. Um, Thanks also to all the folks in St. John's who came out and specifically mentioned their fans of Sandy and Nora. That was really, really cool. I had the pleasure of being in St. John's this past week, um, which is like a city that... Hey, St. John's! (laughs) It's a city that everyone everyone needs to go. It's as great as it sounds. And and so thank you to them. But specifically this week, the folks that donated for the first time or changed their donation, thank you so much to Jennifer, Kari, Lou, Bill, a different Bill, David... Mary, Lisa, and O, thank you so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. So, Nora, how do we start this conversation? (laughs) Before we start this conversation, I want to have a very, very quick uh, discussion of two things. First, a listener sent us a link to a story and, and begged us to talk about it. I'm not sure how deep we can get into this because it's it's a local issue in Ottawa, but I do want to raise it on the air for people to pay attention to. So there's this guy called Rick Shirelli. He's an Ottawa city councillor. The allegations of sexual assault against him are... Um, are, are are profound, are enormous, uh, are like could fill a, a warehouse. <laughs> and somehow this guy uh, continues to operate within city politics and, and denies that there's anything that he's ever done anything wrong. Um, and so people should definitely watch what's going on with Rick Shirelli. Uh, you should watch calls from solidarity campaigns to like send him emails or call him out or just bother him because like he needs to be pushed out of public uh, life. And if um, allegations and eventually what is likely going to happen charges uh, of sexual assault don't do it, then certainly we can um, engage in some targeted activities to make sure that he's aware that people are watching. So thanks, uh, Nancy, for raising that to us. And um, if there's a deeper story in there, uh, feel free to be in touch with us. I mean, there is a deeper story in there. But as I say, um, sadly, there's a lot of of very disgusting and skeezy city and town councillors in this country. In fact, I would go so far as saying they are not even a tiny minority. Yikes. This name sounds really familiar, so I'm not sure if I've seen some of these these things, but yeah, let's let's keep on top of this. Thanks for emailing us about that. Yes, you might know the name Shirelli because his second cousin uh, ran for mayor. <laughs> but um, but he's been in the news for, 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 for quite a while. These allegations are not new. So fuck you and fuck off, Rick Shirelli. The other thing I want to mention before we have this conversation tonight is, Sandy, have you been watching what's going on in France? Uh, I mean, I know that Macron has um, come through victorious, but beyond that, I haven't been paying too, too much attention. Uh, You lucky soul. You must not live in a town where the most number of immigrants of any country comes from France. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let's just say that every activity I've engaged in the last like four weeks um, has always uh, had something about, you know, either the political questions or the technical questions like where are you voting and when are the polls open and that kind of thing. So Macron has won. He's a centrist and he won with, uh, I think it's 58 percent of the vote. Now, shockingly, uh, it seems that Marine Le Pen, who was the second place candidate and so was in this runoff ballot because France has runoff ballots two weeks after the general elections. Le Pen uh, got 41%. And if our listeners don't know who Marianne Le Pen is, she's a fascist, like a total fucking fascist. 
And um, 41% of, of French voters voted for a fascist. And then the other 58% like either were compelled to or felt um, the need to block Le Pen by, by supporting this flimsy neoliberal centrist who's been actually using the war in Ukraine uh, very um, stealthily to, 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 to ensure that people voted for him uh, and give him a second mandate. I don't know about you, Sandy, but I'm pretty pretty concerned about that interplay between the center and the far right. And France is not alone in how those two tendencies seem to uh, dance with one another, just flinging us all further and further and further to the right. Yeah. And of course, it seems like uh, there's uh, some similarities to some of the things that we've seen right here domestically. So that is definitely concerning. Um, I suppose we'll want to keep our eye on that as well, not just in France, but all over kind of the Western world, this sort of resurgence of the fascist right and how the center is uh, helping to support their their whole existence. Yes, everybody should be keeping their eyes on that. So I don't know, France, figure out your shit. Canada, we got some shit to figure out. There's a lot of shit that needs to be figured out. <laughs> no doubt. So tonight or today or this morning, whenever you're listening to this episode, we wanted to talk about human interaction and organizing, because I feel like after two years of our interactions being put under a microscope, partly because we just don't really have very many interactions and partly because like, you know, when you don't see people, then you're able to think a lot about what you've lost or what you've gained by not seeing people. It seems to me that there's a deep problem in left-wing organizing right now that's related to how we treat one another how we try to control spaces and how much pressure we put on ourselves to get it perfect or very, very correct in the in the organizing spaces that we and I'm going to use this word very intentionally that we curate. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm definitely noticing that as well. And I mean, I feel like we've had versions of this conversation, but maybe not quite so pointedly. Um, when we've critiqued how we engage on social media or um, when we talk about how to uh, engage in conflict and how conflict can be a good thing. Um, but I think maybe it is time to put a, f a bit of a finer point on it and talk like more directly about what this is looking like in left-wing spaces and how it's harming left-wing organizing. Uh, because... Eh, yeah, I really struggle with this, too. It, it seems like there is a really deep desire to be perfect in one's politic in order to then take any sort of action or do anything about the various injustices and uh, ugliness that is facing all of us. And I... I can't help but think that that is the absolute wrong approach because, well, because I think it's kind of impossible to be perfect. And I think that perfect, like the idea of being perfect uh, kind of uh, makes us sort of immobile almost like it, it, you know, if you, if you cannot move until you are perfect, then all of the other forces that are making things hard for everyone, they're not going to stop moving until you're perfect. They're just going to keep trudging right along. And so we have to be, and I think generally the left should be principally, the type of space where it's okay to make mistakes and one can be supported in making those mistakes. And it also has to be the type of space where we recognize that, my gosh, there's just like too few of us. And, you know, if, as we learned last night in this anti-war session, you know, if the military has 600 PR people, thank you, Rachel Small, for letting us know about that. The military has 600 PR people. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, a fledgling anti-war movement who is trying to to counter uh, the military's propaganda, 
we we kind of don't have people to waste. We can't just be like, oh, you got it wrong. Goodbye. You're you're out of here. So mm-hmm. uh, I think we really have to think about the types of spaces that we are, yes, curating and, and whether or not we are operating to police those spaces. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I think that that's exactly right. And, I, you know, we have to make it clear that I, I, I don't like where I see this happening. Behavior that I would be critical of is not ever actually almost I can't think of a time where I would be like saying that this was that this was intentional it it seems very unintentional it seems very much like people are trying to do something else and then the result is policing the actions of people around them or insisting on standards that are not possible for people to meet or not reasonable for people to meet or that rely on a level of commitment and trust from participants that just that's just not reasonable that people just can't give um it's i'm thinking of so many examples and and one that i'm thinking of is like you know you've got an organizing space and uh people will say that the most important thing to do in that organizing space would be to build trust And yes, building trust is very important and building trust has been very, very difficult in the last two years because the regular day to day activities that you would engage in to build trust are just not really present. Like you don't get to hang out after meetings, you don't get to see each other face to face, you don't get to um, you don't even really get to have a, a debate where you're in the presence of someone. And so words can be misunderstood or taken the wrong way or 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 maybe someone really does completely fuck up and there's not really any way to like have a conversation about it. That's not weird because then you're just you're just always online. And I think the lack of these kinds of interactions has m- made us forget that Trust is like important for a kind of organizing. Trust is important for organizing where people are taking massive risks, where people might be breaking the law or doing civil disobedience. Trust is important for uh, things where consequences are, are very severe. But most of our organizing's not that. And it's so interesting because I hear from activists all the time about the feeling that they have that they're not being able to build trust. And it's like, for what? Like what, what, what activities are you doing where you have to build trust or, or are we kind of like doing, doing the personal relationship building at the expense of the political, whereas normally without COVID, it would be the other way around where you do the political and through the political, you build those personal relationships. Yeah. And I also think, um, they're related to trust is, um, is also this sort of idea that you you have to like each other like that you <laughs> you must enjoy the company of all of the people that you organize with with which can make things easier certainly mm. but that is not a requirement <laughs> that is not a requirement like i mean if what is facing you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is um the eventual complete destruction of the human race through the climate crisis I mean, it's a trade-off that you might have to work with some people that you fucking don't like. And I say this, you know, again, I mean, Nora and I have mentioned this several times coming from the student movement and being forced to work with people that I really didn't like, but I could recognize as competent or I could recognize as um, maybe even incompetent, but useful, <laughs> you know, like, or maybe even <laughs> incompetent and not useful, but still willing to try to do something. And that's enough to right. be a part. That's enough to be a part of, of some sort of um, organizing effort. And I think that this is really crucial and of really, uh, I think that this is really important. Because I think that the things that are facing us are too big for us to be quite so precious about the way that we are organizing. Now, I I, I want to be clear that it's not a bad thing to try to be better or to try to be like better than what came before or better than what something is right now or to like... Uh, critique the fuck out of something until you really, really understand it. But I also think that there's a way that we can like recognize tensions or understand that 
um, okay, this person said something off or this person fucked up um, one time, but can they help us collect petitions so that we can grab as many um, uh, contacts information as from as many people as possible so we can grow our movement? Like, yeah, probably. Like, maybe I don't want them to be... Uh, the person in the the really really risky direct action that might result in all of our arrest um maybe i don't want them there but is there another place where we can work together and i think we're having too few of these sorts of nuanced decisions about how we interact with one another and when we can come together yeah yeah like as you were talking i was thinking about the pressure that a lot of these expectations places on people who are organizing the, the, the event or the group or the whatever, right? So whoever the people you would identify as be, being like responsible for the curation of the space. And so much of it, I mean, it, it really does, I think, land on the, the lap of social media. We can, we can blame so much of the, this like way of thinking about this stuff on the, on the lap of social media. But like when there's conflict within a group, and let's say that it's very clear that one person is the source of the conflict. There seems to be this tendency to like place on the people who might have more power in the room to take care of it, to be the ones who are responsible. Like they assume the responsibility of everyone in the group. And if, it's, if everyone is present and doing this kind of work and the work is righteous, that means that everybody is righteous. And if someone is not righteous, then they need to be kicked out of the group. And if they're not kicked out of the group, that means that the group condones or supports what this person has done. And therefore, the entire group is no longer righteous. You know, it's just like... It's, it's like everything is balancing on the head of a pin. And I see this from the perspective of like a cop walking in and being like, hmm, how could I cause the most damage? And it would be so easy because these spaces, I mean, a part of it is because they think of atrophy because there's so few of us around and we're trying to keep things together and, and you want it to be fun and you want it to feel safe and you don't want it to be a slog, which is, I mean, completely fair. But, but it, it then requires like the group to assume everybody and their presence, their their mere presence is like proof that they're good. Mm-hmm. And then they do something wrong, whether or not that's in the group. Like you can imagine people doing something in their day-to-day life that doesn't have anything to do with the organizing that would be egregious enough to remove them from the organizing space. And then the group has control over that like it like it's just it just puts so much power in the hands of so few people with absolutely no like not necessarily with the skills needed to deal with this uh not there's certainly like not very good widespread accountability practices i know a lot of people struggle with this a lot um and and it's and i would back up and just be like why like what is the point of of assuming this level of responsibility to curate your space or put another way, if you're if you're someone that's warning a group of people about someone's behavior and you expect that group of people to act on removing that person or whatever, like you're placing a lot of responsibility on people that you may not know. Maybe you know them a little bit. Maybe you know them well to then do the job of like police and jury <laughs> related to this individual within the within the organizing group. And as I'm talking, like I'm not I'm not actually thinking of a situation specifically where um, I don't know, someone has done something really egregious and a group's trying to struggle with what to do with them. Like, I, I mean, none of my groups are organizing actually that ser- seriously at a level where that would even matter, where I would even know that kind of personal information about people that I organize with in Quebec City. Although that's not entirely true because I do know of some of some people's lives and the complications of their lives and difficult situation and who hates who. And it's a city where people don't move on very much. So there's beefs that go back decades and decades. Right. But at some level, like we hit we hit a limit. There's a there's a very clear limit to this, which is that we cannot control these spaces. We cannot control these spaces because if 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 they're infiltrated by police and that person who infiltrates it realizes that, that, that these spaces hin- like are, are balanced on the head of a pin. And all it is, all it's required to knock it off that pin is to just make an issue about someone's behavior in the group. It's like then everything collapses. And for me, that's the litmus test about whether or not this is a strong enough approach to dealing with conflict within our movements. And I would say that it's not. Hmm. I, I was thinking about so much with what you just said. It's interesting that you went um, directly to cops because and like uh, infiltration and whether or not... Um, the way our organizing culture is set up um, uh, helps 
uh, the cops because that's directly where I go. Um, at, in part because, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of organizing around anti-black racism. And, uh, you know, in 2017 or something, the FBI uh, came out and said explicitly that they were prioritizing black identity extremists. But we don't know how they did, like what they've, what resources they've allocated or what actions they've taken. But we do know, you know, if you're a reader of history, um, we're at this point uh, in uh, black liberation organizing that looks really familiar to another point uh, that happened in the 70s where like um, a lot of the uh, movement organizations kind of uh, started fighting with one another and uh, it's like, oh, I hear it is all happening again. (laughs) This is really interesting and I wonder how much our organizing culture um, helps set that up. One of the things that I think is um, just a part of our culture more generally right now, not just the left and organizing, just more generally, is how important rhetoric is rather than like doing a thing. Like the rhetoric of doing the thing is more important than actually doing the thing. Um, And uh, an example of this that I was thinking about this week as I attended... Operation Black Vote Canada's leaders debate uh, for the Ontario election this week, which was um, over Zoom. Um, All the major party leaders attended except, of course, Doug Ford. Uh, I was like listening to the candidates and extremely frustrated, um, as I'm sure many of you um, have probably been before, at the level of rhetoric um, with zero substance. And it was like... Um, you know, that has become politically acceptable that someone can say, you know, um, gosh, I'm really I'm really critiquing the government and their actions on this particular issue because they have not implemented targets. And this is this is something that was actually said in the debate. Doug Ford's uh, government have not implemented targets for this thing. Um, and, you know, like our government um or our party recognizes that there is a need for targets to make sure that we are addressing this properly. Targets. And I'm like, okay, so what what the fuck is the target then? But no no one says. And that is how the discussion went uh, with all three of the leaders um, from the Green Party, the Liberals, and the NDP. They started to sound more like activists then they were sounding like uh, politicians promising to do this, that, or the other. They were they were like critiquing one another and saying what needed to happen, but no details as to what the plan was of how they were going to make that thing that needed to happen actually happen. Now, I bring this up because I think that it is part of our culture recently to be more um, rhetorical, make sure that we know how to say the right things, than to actually be doing what we can. Um, As I've been thinking more and more about um, what happened in Ottawa during the convoy protests and then what didn't happen and what took too long to happen, I think that that's a part of it. I think that um, we're, we're super concerned with making sure that we are correct about what we're saying about a thing. Um, And it becomes way more important to be correct about what we're saying about a thing uh, than to actually do anything and quite frankly with all of the dangers facing us that's just not good enough we have to be more okay with doing and fucking up Mm -hmm. and uh, like the just the pursuit of trying to shift something has to be more important than sounding correct because if it's not then we make the error of thinking that saying the thing is doing the thing, and it's not. Those are two very different things, both of which need to be done, but one is certainly not more important than the other. I imagine people are probably wondering then, what do we do with individuals who cause harm in spaces? 
And I think that that is the big struggle. And I know a lot of people struggle with this. I have never heard anybody say, oh, we figured it out. <laughs> Literally, in all the conversations that I have with people who are younger, people who are older, people who have been at it for a long time or people who are new, it's like pretty consistently people saying, yeah, that's a big problem. That's a big problem because there's there's like the expedient way of, of just saying, you know, someone's no longer invited to do the thing anymore. Uh, then there's the, 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 the difficult way, which is to try and create some sort of accountability process that may or may not work, that may or may not uh, allow people to participate in the way that they need to or should or whatever. Um, and I know a lot of accountability processes like end up just being PR exercises anyway, and then people get all disappointed and distraught. And it takes so much time as well. And I'm kind of I, like, I'm a bit of a throw caution to the wind person in this stuff where it's like, uh, why is this our problem? You know, it's like, why, why does this become, this is my personal problem because I've been like, cause I called the meeting and now like I have to figure this out or we have to figure, we have to spend time dealing with this individual rather than any of our core work, which is exactly why I think of police in those situations where it's just like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? Rather than having ways to like change or direct or redirect or give different tasks to, or, um, or continue to work in a specific direction. And if that's against the ideas or uh, feelings of some individuals in the group, then, then they leave. And that's fucking fine. Like that's a part of organizing too, is that sometimes people will be like, this isn't for me and they leave. And maybe it's that actually that we don't really talk enough about that there seems to be like, partly it's because there's so few people, but there seems to be like this idea that like we need to hold on to people at all costs. Or we dispose of them uh, if there's been a fuck up. And it's kind of like, it's like these things need to shift and they need to move around and people need to come in and out of our, of our, of our groups. And it's okay. It's, it's fine, actually. It's actually good. Uh, it can be good. Um, and then figuring out like clever ways to like isolate the person that's causing the problems or, um, you know, if you do have, if you have been infiltrated by a police officer, figuring out ways to keep them away from anything that matters, <laughs> right? Like I'm thinking of something that I have been involved in uh, in recent years where we were pretty much sure that someone had been sent to be part of our group to watch what we were doing. And we just joked about it quietly and made sure that that individual had no access to anything that mattered. Like that was just how we dealt with it. And I don't know, Sandy, like maybe that takes a bunch of years of skill to be able to identify and then come up with like strategies to work around it. And in an absence of those kinds of skills or being able to see these kinds of practices that you're just kind of like, Oh my God, I have no idea what we're supposed to do. And I, and I had a conversation actually with activists in a city once um, where they were sure that there was a police officer among them and they were doing radical work. And yeah, I guess it was pretty clear that they really didn't know how to deal with it. So I, you know, we have to share this kind of knowledge as well. Um, but it does take me back to the first point that I made, which is that, you know, our, there has to be action that we take that is low stakes, that does not require everyone's like total body and, and life to be involved in the organizing that we're doing. Yes. Oh, my God. You said so much there that I want to respond to. So one is harm. Like, how do you uh, how do you you know, what do you do with people who have harmed people in a group? Before we even get to that question, Nora, I think we need to talk about what we are calling harm. I think I think we're calling a lot of things harm on the left and in our organizing spaces that may not be harm. And I've just started to notice that a lot of conflict is articulated as harm. And I have a lot of criticism of that. Um, you'll know that I think that conflict is really important in organizing spaces. I think that we need to be able to argue with one another in order to come to a good to a good resolution for how to move forward. We've done a few episodes on that, but like I've I've noticed recently that sometimes when people disagree with one another or are in conflict with one another, it is articulated as harm. And I think. Um, that we just need to be careful with that. You can be in conflict with someone, you can lose an argument, you can have your feelings hurt without it being harm. I think we have to be really clear about what 
those two things are. I also think that, like, it's really interesting. I think that the people that we are most um, willing to have, have conflict with in our lives are people who we love super deeply, you know, like people who are in our families or people who you trust enough, like you've built enough trust up to be able to have a conflict with them uh, because you feel safe in the conflict. You feel like, okay, at the end of this, this person um, isn't going to dispose of me. But in organizing spaces or in spaces where you haven't built up that trust, an engagement in a conflict might feel really unsafe. And then we get really nervous about being disposed of And then that sets up the situation where instead of like a conflict, you're in what feels like a competition uh, for winning something instead of what you all came there to do, which was to come to a resolution for how to move forward on some sort of organizing tactic. So I think that that's one of the issues is how we um, articulate harm versus conflict and hurt. And then the other thing that I think of um, really deeply based on what you said is um, just organizing spaces and stop me if I've said this on the podcast before. I know I feel like we've talked about it, but I don't know that I've actually said it on the podcast. I think there's a there's there's a way that organizing spaces can be really, really attractive in the sense that like my god for the first time you feel like wow someone is telling me that i can build power and take power back and um make ruptures in uh, elite power and that i have agency and i can i can actually connect with people and fight something and it becomes like so attractive so attractive that you start to get a lot of your maybe emotional needs met from organizing spaces, um, your personal needs, your needs uh, for connection, your needs for like your literal um, survival needs, perhaps home, like uh, perhaps food and um, other types of uh, taking care of your immediate survival needs. And then you're like fully, fully dependent on the organizing space for everything that you are. I think that that's really dangerous. And uh, I think that that makes the stakes of these sorts of conflicts and how we engage with difficulties between personalities and people who have harmed one another uh, and uh, how we interpret uh, whether someone is is uh, welcome in a group anymore because they've said the wrong thing. I think the stakes become so, so high when someone makes an organizing space their entire world. And uh, I just think that that's really unhealthy. And I don't know, I just, uh, that piece for me, when I think about, um, you know, like a lot of people ask me, like, how have you been able to be organizing for so long? I'm like done with this. Like this stuff is wild. Like I can't deal with this. I think it's because I like have many worlds outside of organizing and that keep me, um, intact, (laughs) that keep me, uh, healthy in a way. And then the final thing that I'll say is that, yeah, in BLM too, we've had some experiences, certainly especially in 2016, the year of pride and the year of Tent City and directly at Tent City. There were like three people who we were certain were cops at Tent City. And it was like, okay, we identify them and we figure out how we're going to deal with them because there's there's multiple ways to approach it. We can force a confrontation, which we thought it's going to make everybody unsafe or you figure out tactics as to how to isolate them and make them not matter so that you can keep doing what you need to do uh, in, those, in those situations, whether it's an action or an organizing meeting where you're planning something. Yeah, I think what you were saying about people getting far too much from specific organizing spaces is very, very important. 
And I don't know if it might skew towards newer activists or younger activists. And certainly with COVID, I mean, everything is fucked. So things are not normal right now, as everyone knows. But if you can't step away for whatever reason, if you can't bow out, you can't step away without feeling like you've lost your social circle, your best friends, the people who you like would die for or would be arrested for. Um, then you're probably in too deep. And that it's probably not just you, probably like everybody is actually in too deep. And I can, th- I, I can think of some, some examples of this in different spots all over Canada where it's just like, this is not in the, this is not sustainable. And, and like for me, I always look at movements as being places where we have to develop the, t- the kind of tough skin to be able to confront power in a very direct way. And certainly there's a lot of great work that, that does that, that people experiment and learn and take radical action and um, become stronger as a result. But I do think that the opposite also happens with some people and it burns them out, it freaks them out. Uh, they, can't, they can't continue to operate at the level demanded by the work. Too many people are living with each other, so there's too many roommates involved, and then other issues kind of spill into the work that you're doing. And and again, it's it's all because of this atrophied left that there's just not enough of us, and we're trying to keep keep it together wherever we can. One of the things that I, it never really occurred to me, um, but we I had a listener call me once, and she was asking me if I had advice on what kind of activism that this person could do. And I suggested some of the things in the city that, that they were located uh, that I thought, you know, sounded cool. And one of the most radical things that I'd suggested, this person was like, Oh, I was involved and my partner was involved and there was this like drama and it's not a great scene for me. And I'm not that interested in it, whatever. And I was just like, okay, yeah. So you already got too far into that radical scene and super good on you for identifying that it's not going to work. And as we're going through the conversation through other options, we had this kind of aha moment at the end of the conversation where it was like, they could have actually just done anything like it didn't have to be radical, but they were seeking out radical organizing or radical activities for their activism. And when I suggested something like a neighborhood group or something that seems far less radical and even far less political, but just something that you could, you know, make some friends or develop new skills or fight for something that you could win, like something in your neighborhood that's like kind of lower stakes. This person was like, they, they expressed to me that they were surprised that I would suggest something so not radical, that, um, that shouldn't we all be striving to be doing radical acts or radical actions? And that was a really good reminder to me that I think maybe, um, certainly when I talk about this stuff, I need to be very explicit. I think that people should be doing whatever the fuck they can. Mm-hmm. And if that's in your condo corporation, yep. if that's in your fucking neighborhood group, if that's if that's within your kid's school for parent council or whatever, like do whatever folk festival organizing or other arts festival, do whatever you can because you will find other people, you will you will move from one space to another space. And that's going to be how we build things. Because we also can't lose sight of the fact that we need to be doing diverse kinds of things that 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 like it's life and death too much of the time. So if you can find a place where, you know, you're fighting for a new stop sign and if you fail, like you'll just fight harder and it's city politics, you'll eventually win that stop sign. Like that's just how it works. Those kinds of victories are good, too, and can certainly help buoy you and sustain you um, in the long path of activism. So I really encourage people like. If you're not sure what to do, you're not sure what to do with your current situation, maybe the groups that you're organizing with, you're feeling burnt out and stressed out and it's not the kind of fun that you were having in the past. There's nothing wrong with doing something that seems super not radical. Yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, I I do uh, really used to I injured at the moment, but used to do capoeira, you know, like I'm uh, running right now, like uh, for for folks, if you're doing stuff in groups like that, I mean, those are also places where you can have political conversations. And sometimes they might feel less radical than what you're used to. But it is just as important to have those political conversations, Um, you know, like meet your neighbors, that sort of thing. That's all very, very important. 
One other thing that I wanted to say that I'm not actually even sure I want to say, but uh, let's try a thing. <laughs> oh, accountability processes. You mentioned them. You mentioned them for a second. I, I really struggle with these. I really, I have been a part of a few. Uh, some that have worked really, really well and some that haven't. And I am skeptical of them. I am skeptical of them as um, spaces that, again, kind of set up this sort of uh, can, not always. It depends on who the facilitator is and how people are coming to the table and what they really want and whatever. can also set up a system where people are trying to be right on uh, on multiple sides of an issue. And I can't help but think um, that we need, I don't know, some sort of like set of principles or ethics that generally on the left that we follow that help us to wade through the mud of an accountability process gone wrong, mm, you know, that yeah. everyone all of a sudden knows about. Things like, you know, like if we all know that the the first step in accountability process is to keep things confidential and then it's no longer confidential and only one side is talking, well, <laughs> maybe that's a thing to be skeptical about or just to think about carefully. But maybe even beyond that, before we even get there, we need to think about the accountability process as it stands. Like I, I kind of feel like, I don't know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like maybe maybe it's the case that mediators who mediate uh, accountability processes actually need to be engaged far longer than just the course of the accountability process. Maybe they mm -hmm. need to be engaged like forever. <laughs> like if something uh, if something later happens that is harmful between the the people who are involved in a, an accountability process or that is conflictual um, then the mediator can re-engage or, or say something about it and try to um, try to make things uh, come together in a reconcilable way. Perhaps parties to a mediation should agree to some sort of consequence if the, um, if the terms of the mediation are broken ahead of time um, so that there is something that's there that holds everyone to the same sort of standard because... For so, like, I can tell you about certain movements and issues where it seems like people are fighting over a political thing, but it's actually a result of, like, a personal problem that went wrong, and now everyone's, like, trying to fight each other um, using the movement instead of, instead of fighting each other on the actual thing. And it's like, God, this is, this is like, really, really harmful to the work that we're all trying to do and it's exhausting and making people exhausted through organizing work really really threatens our ability to be successful in what we're all trying to do in shifting the world so i don't know dude like <laughs> accountability processes I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on what I've just said there, please let me know, because I really, really struggle with this stuff. Like, I just don't understand why we can't why we can't be in conflict in a, in a way that is generative. Or if you have an example of a process that's worked, I mean, I think that that would be useful, too, because so often these things like fall into being carceral, right? We're like, you're trying to punish, you're trying to replicate yeah. systems of justice that we already would say are unjust. The, the last thing that I want to say while you were talking, I was kind of launched back 20, 20 years or 15 years or something. The moment where I decided to no longer hold my friends and comrades beefs was so liberating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had a friend who is wonderful and who I adored, um, but who had so many beefs with people, so many conflicts, and they were all like fair and legitimate. And she would insist that we would like hold on to 
her conflicts. And so if we mentioned someone that we knew that she was in conflict with, it was like, why are you mentioning that person? You know that person did this. You know that this person did that or whatever, right? And for a couple of years, it was like, okay, okay, I got a map of people that I, I know, like that person is this problem, that person is that problem, I won't mention this person, whatever, right? And when I finally decided that that was not my fucking business and I was going to let go of all of those conflicts and not hold them in my mind... It was so liberating. Mm-hmm. It didn't change our relationship. It, it just meant that I no longer had to feel like I needed to fight someone else's battles. And I really can't recommend it enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also did something similar some time ago and I uh, it improved my life tenfold. <laughs> but also it is it's again one of these things that is um antithetical to our organizing principles on the left as you say a lot of this stuff is punitive like um trying to um have everyone essentially like banish someone through like refusing to talk to them anymore because someone had some sort of personal issue with you that uh with them that you don't actually really know the contours of that is a punitive way of engaging with one another and that is should be, I mean, antithetical to um, the principles that generally those of us who are progressive and on the left espouse. And I think that it's just like it's we should be thinking about ethics and principles and how we want to engage with each other, the world that we're trying to build um, in the future. And gosh, it just looks like we're taking each other to task um, and policing um, whether or not we are the right kind of left rather than doing stuff. That's just not a movement I want to be a part of. Straight up. 